the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the third hour. Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler this morning. A News Talk 710 KNUS. Of course, I do host the Jimmy Sangenberger Show every Saturday morning from 6 to 9 here on News Talk 710 KNUS. Great to be with you on this the day that is 10 days before Christmas Eve, if you can believe it. And I can't. We're almost through 2022. I know it's cliche, but my mind is still a little bit blown about that. But it's great to be with you on this December 14th. 303-696-1971 is our telephone number if you'd like to join in to the festivities. You can also text into the show on the 710 KNUS app on your smartphone. If you don't have it, what are you doing? Download the app today. You can access podcast contests and much more, plus text into the show. There's also Twitter. I am on the Twitterverse, in the Twitterverse, I don't know, whatever it is. At Sang Center is my Twitter handle. That's saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. And you can also email yours truly directly via 710knus.com and go to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show page because that's how you get it directly to me. And you can also email me via my website, jimmysangenberger.com. Keep in mind, it's all E's all the time in Sangenberger. Good to be with you today and good to talk about the many issues that we have on our plate. I mean, it is one of the things in media. I'm a columnist twice a week, a radio host. George is a host and a columnist. We never have a shortage of things to talk about. That's one of the remarkable things about this time. And even social media itself provides ample points of discussion. Elon Musk purchased Twitter. He first announced it in, what, I think April of this year, and I was filling in right here for George. Bill Thorpe was behind the glass, and we were wondering, was this actually going to happen? Was this really going to take shape? Would he finalize the purchase? And he did. And now a whole lot of stuff has happened. We've had the Twitter files and the revelations of the Biden campaign trying to get certain stories related to hunter biden and his laptop removed you had the developments that the the government agencies the fbi and department of homeland security were regularly having meetings and gave a with twitter facebook and so forth and gave tips to them about stuff that could come regarding Hunter Biden and what have you. I mean, there's a lot that we've learned in that regard from the Twitter files over the last week and a half. 
and their release. But there's also just the general discussion about free speech on Twitter and how to handle that and Elon Musk getting the left all in a tizzy. And there's a perception that they're trying to express that Elon Musk wants to sort of force now people to see certain views in a way that, as one columnist at The Atlantic discussed on MSNBC, is akin to forcing a bookstore to display a book. Take a listen to this from Adam Sewer. Twitter is a private company. Elon Musk can do what he wants with it. Um, but, you know, before when it was not owned by Elon Musk, they wanted to use the power of the state to control what you could say on Twitter or to tell Twitter uh, what their editorial policies were allowed to be. Um, and, and to look at it sort of metaphorically, it's like saying, you know, bookstores decide what kind of books they want to carry all the time. Um, and this is sort of like these laws are sort of like saying, well, you have to carry these books. You have to put, you know, Don Trump Jr.'s uh, book in front in the front display window. You have to promote his speech. You can't make your own decision about what speech is valuable or should be promoted um, because they fundamentally do not believe that if you are saying something they don't want you to say that you have the same right to free speech that they do. What? That comparison was utterly nonsensical. On the one hand, we are told, and I agree with this perception, by the way, that social media platforms are not publishers. They're different in how they operate. Publishers have much more intimate engagement in what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Similarly with a bookstore. A bookstore determines what books they want to sell or don't want to sell. They have that ability. They can decide on the display, so on and so forth. Similar to a publisher. They're deciding which ones get and make those decisions intimately versus social media platforms, which are supposed to be involved only insofar as they set certain standards and they want to enforce those standards. Now, do they go beyond? Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that with the revelations coming out of the Twitter files insofar as we're learning more and more about requests for censorship and and the government saying, hey, we think you should block this or watch out for this particular content or push up this kind of content. I mean, that's something that Jen Psaki, the former White House press secretary, said back in February this year when she was still in the White House. Where she was making the point that they were talking with social media companies saying we want insofar as it concerns covid Certain content to be pushed down and other content to be pushed up. Very explicit about that. So this bookstore analogy is ludicrous. I mean, if a platform is intended to allow people to say what they want to say, then of course you should allow that within some standards. Making that kind of equivalency to a bookstore or to a publisher, to me, uh, doesn't fit in any way, shape, or form. It's it's a very poor analogy, and people aren't being forced to see particular content. You can, by the way, you can block. If you don't like somebody and what they say, you can block them, or you can mute them so that you aren't exposed to their content on Twitter. But then it got even more interesting when you had Joy Reid over on MSNBC saying that Elon Musk and the right 
want to manipulate language. I mean, they feel like they need to manipulate language, as you said, force Don Jr.'s book to the front of the, you know, of the bookstore because nobody wants to buy it and nobody wants to hear it. Um, you know, and this idea of trying to control language itself, because Sherilyn Eiffel highlighted one of these other tweets where Elon Musk, who is a child of, of a pre-apartheid, of, of apartheid era South Africa, twisted the meaning of truth and reconciliation. And she says it's deliberate. A white guy raised in apartheid era South Africa with no anti-apartheid bona fides, bona fides to his name, co-ops, mistakes, and distorts a concept of racial accountability in South Africa for his right-wing fantastical ends. They're just words to him because he wrote truth brings reconciliation. You know, it's the same thing that Christopher Rufo did with critical race theory. I mean, he bragged about not knowing what it is, but said, I want whenever people hear critical race theory for them to think anti-white. We want them to think these horrible things. And I just want it to have a bad association. I don't care what it means. It feels like this is now Elon Musk's purpose for Twitter to just change the meaning of free speech to I, you have to let me harass you. What? What? How ludicrous are these people? And this is because he put out a tweet that said truth brings reconciliation she talks about trying to control language folks here is a headline fox news from yesterday you want to talk about controlling language cambridge dictionary changes definition of man and woman 1984 wasn't supposed to be a how-to manual they have in quotes here's the lead Cambridge Dictionary is being criticized by conservatives on social media for altering the definitions of the words man and woman to include people who identify as a gender other than their biological sex. The definition of woman, which previously represented the long-standing view on sex, now states that a woman is, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. Similarly, a man is now defined as, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. And of course, they talk about the pushback that this change has meant. Let's talk about the idea of trying to control languages. It is audacious coming from somebody on the left like Joy Reid to make such a claim when they are the ones who have been changing and trying to control language for real now in a dictionary. What do people reference when they give a definition? They reference a dictionary. The dictionary is seen as the definitive source for defining words. And this is what they're doing now in changing the definition of man and woman to basically make it where it's determined by the individual. That That's hard <clears throat> to really see as a definitive definition. And isn't it a little bit circular? An adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. So if you say that you are a man and you have to look for that definition, it, it's a little bit circular in the definition. But trying to control language because he's talking about free speech. Come on. 303-696-1971. Let's go to Robert in Littleton. Robert, you're on with Jimmy in for George. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jimmy. Um, yeah, just wanted to kind of weigh in on the uh, this absolute in that yes they 
were trying to force speech on people and they were trying to control speech. But the they is the left wing of America. Yes. Uh, it, 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 for, for years, and I guess this is really what bothers me. For years, the left had basically a stranglehold on what was allowed to be put out on Twitter. Um, and as we see the, the, you know, the release of these, the Twitter files and, and all of the internal communications, it was pretty obvious that they had a, a concerted effort to either promote or not promote things that comported with their political ideology. Yes. Um, and, and as well as a concerted effort to shut down people who, who would tweet or say whatever you want to call it, anything that they didn't agree with or that they personally found offensive. And I think for at least the last five or six years, what I have heard from conservatives, Republicans, whether it be, uh, you know, in, in, in the media or in Congress or anything else was, hey, you know what, whatever your standards are, that's fine. Enforce them equally across the board. Um, you know, if, if, if you say X, Y, and Z cannot under any circumstances be published or, or, or put out on Twitter, that's fine. But nobody gets to put out X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that person. Um, and, and that was the problem is that conservatives on Twitter would say something and would be relentlessly harassed, called all manner of vile names, accused of the worst possible things that a human being could ever be accused of, called Nazis and fascists and you know child predators, rapists, and this, that, and the other. And that was perfectly okay with Yoel Roth and, and this other crew of misfits at, at Twitter. All Elon Musk has said, or done, is said, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if, if you want to put it out there, that's cool, but you got to be expected, you know, you're, you have to expect, rather, to get it back. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the standards will be applied across the board in the same even-handed fashion. And if right. you don't like what you hear, go away. And this is something, you know, I've, I've said for years when people talk about well, we should, you know, ban this book or this radio show or this TV show or this movie or this song or, or whatever it happens to be. Hey, if you don't like it, change the freaking channel, man. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a thousand radio stations and a thousand television stations. Better yet, turn it off and, and go read a book. Um, if you don't like what that book says, don't check it out of the library. Don't buy it. Um, people have this uber-sensitive, hyper-inflated sense of their own self-importance and think that their standards, whatever those standards may be, should be applied to everyone else because I don't like it or because my little feelings were hurt. Jesus, man, grow up, put your big boy pants or your big girl pants on, act like an adult, and, and right. do something with your life well, instead of being a professional victim. Robert, I, I think that's so well put and very true about Twitter. I love that analogy of good for the goose is good for the gander because it really fits. But here's something that you do see, and we see this a little bit on the left, but more pronounced lately. You do have some on the right who want to remove certain books. They want to ban certain books, particularly from school libraries. How do you think that comports with the perspective you're expressing that conservatives are sharing vis-a-vis social media? Is there a difference between that? Is there something similar? What do you see? Um, I, I think it depends on the context of it, um, because I, I'm old enough to remember when Catcher in the Rye mm-hmm. was not supposed to be in school libraries, um, you know, because of the, the imagery that was expressed. 
within it. Right. Um, I, I remember a, a time when people said that, uh, oh, God, now I can't think of the name of the darn book, uh, Boo Radley. Um, come on, man. <laughs> Shake my brain loose here. Um, shouldn't have been in public schools. Kill the Mockingbird. The kill a Mockingbird. To yeah, kill a Mockingbird. I'm sorry. I just had a, had a brain fart this morning. Um, but because of the imagery and, you know, the ideas that were expressed in it, that, that it wasn't appropriate for children. And I understand that there, there needs to be a certain level of moderation, especially as it pertains to, like, school libraries, um, where we're talking about young kids that I, I don't think a 7- or an 8-year-old needs to be subjected to um, or, or even have available to them uh, imagery of violence, of racism, of, uh, you know, anything sexual in nature. They're kids. They're little kids. They shouldn't have that shoved in their face or, or even available to them on a, on a regular basis right. or on a, on a ready basis, I should say. Um, but at the same time, and it's such a slippery slope of speech because when you say, okay, well, this person, because they're expressing racist views, okay, just pick a, you know, pick a person, whoever, because they're expressing racist views, they should not have a platform. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, most right. people would say, yeah, that's a good idea, right? Here's the problem. When you ban the guy who's expressing racist views, next you're going to ban the guy that's expressing, uh, you know, anti-white views. And then you're going to ban the guy that expresses, hey, just think for yourself right. views. Uh, that, that slope gets slippery in a yeah. hurry and well, it's very, very steep you, you, on the hit, you hit on something important, Robert, which is about context. Sure. I think especially in a school context, that's important. But what about determining the context on social media platforms does it matter in that regard or does the school setting is that the overriding context it's the the platform or the venue the vehicle that you were talking about because there is context that people could say oh this we have a rise in anti-semitism and acts of uh, hatred against jewish people in our society we see that today so is that, is that context, a context through which a platform like Twitter could say, we are going to remove anybody who makes any sort of allusion that is anti-Semitic or what have you? Is that context? And how do you define some of these terms and what's appropriate or not for schools, for social media, what have you, like sexual? And how do you define the age for little kids and so forth? I mean... A lot of this, doesn't it get to the devil is in the details when you're talking about social media and or books in schools? Yeah, it really does. And I think, you know, we, we, we throw around this word context as if it um, were the perfect descriptor of all things. And I, look, people that are smarter than I am are going to have to figure this one out. But I think that schools are a far different venue than Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of the other social media platforms. Um, do kids have access to those? Of course they do. <laughs> Anybody with a phone's got access to it. Um, that having been said, if you are going to have a social media platform as basically a bastion of free speech, free discussion, the exchange of ideas, uh, the ability to debate, or in many terms, you know, in many cases, just call somebody stupid. Um, you start restricting that, and again, that slippery slope kicks in. Um, we say, okay, there's a, race, uh, a rise in anti-Semitism or a rise in uh, racially motivated crime or whatever. Okay, well, how do you make the corollary link between that and what some goofball from Podunk, Iowa, 
said on Twitter at 8.30 in the morning on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, sure. if this guy came out and said, hey, I'm going to go shoot up a synagogue today, okay, hey, man, we've got something tangible there. <laughs> you know, this, this, is, this is actionable. This is something that should be acted upon. And not only should that, that post or tweet or whatever be removed, but that person should be looked at pretty darn hard by, by law enforcement and whatever their jurisdiction Yes. Is. But if you have somebody that says, uh, you know, I, I think I, this, this sounds horrible coming out of my own mouth, um, I think Jews are, you know, greedy. Okay, is that a sh- sorry? I almost let an expletive fly there. Is that a crappy thing to say? Yes, of course it's a crappy. It's thing wrong. To say. Fundamental. Uh, is, but should is, it be is, removed exactly from a platform like that? I, I I see what you mean. Is it? That's, the, the, that's, that's you, what I'm saying. You're you're, so. you're bringing some nuance to this sort of discussion. Um, and and I, I think that that is something that's very hard to get here in in this point in time. Uh, Robert, I got to run to a break. We got a guest coming up at the bottom of the okay. hour. Very interesting call and thoughts there. I, I do appreciate it. And the uh, a little bit of nuance this morning as well in the discussion of free speech. Thank you so much. 303-696-1971, our telephone number. When we come back, John Burlow. He's a senior fellow and director of finance policy at the Enterprise Institute. He's going to join us for a segment to pick up on that FTX conversation from earlier in the program. Again, this former CEO and the founder of FTX, the cryptocurrency firm. Uh, his name is Sam Bankman Freed. He was arrested. And that precluded him from testifying before Congress yesterday. What are some takeaways as far as the regulatory side and more? We'll talk about that. As we continue here on News Talk 710 KNUS, Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler, John Burlow joining us next. Stay with us. Good morning, Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for George Brockler today. News Talk 710 KNUS also getting the experience of... The camera's being in here. It's a little different hosting radio when you know you're being watched. They're not supposed to they're not supposed to see your face. But alas, now you can. The seven ten KNUS YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at seven ten KNUS, seven ten KNUS dot com. Good to be with you today. Earlier in the program, in the first hour, we spent time talking about the latest developments on FTX, this cryptocurrency firm that is going bankrupt, multi-billion dollar company. And we learned in congressional testimony yesterday from the guy who took over as CEO from Sam Bankman Freed, who was just arrested, by the way, he was supposed to testify before Congress as well, and ended up not doing so because he was arrested in the Bahamas, charged with criminal fraud and conspiracy. And this is something that one listener, I think, aptly described as con job Ponzi scheme. And in testimony yesterday, John Ray, the now CEO of FDX, who formerly oversaw Enron doing that whole during that whole debacle, had some disturbing insights to offer in his testimony yesterday. The FTX group is unusual in the sense that, you know, I've done probably a, a dozen large, you know, scale bankruptcies over my career, including Enron, of course. 
every one of those entities had some financial problem or another. Uh, they have some characteristics that are in common. Uh, this one is unusual, and it's unusual in the sense that literally, you know, there's no record keeping whatsoever. It's the absence of record keeping. Employees would communicate, you know, invoicing and expenses on on Slack, which is, you know, essentially a, a you know a way of communicating for chat rooms. Uh, they use QuickBooks, a multi-billion-dollar company using QuickBooks. 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 Uh, Nothing against QuickBooks, very nice tool, just not for a multi-billion dollar company. Nor should a company that is multi-billion dollars, or any company for that matter, approve expense reports via text with emojis. Let's talk about what's going on here, and particularly some of the interesting regulatory aspects and potential regulatory aspects that are implicated in this situation. With John Burlau, he is a senior fellow and director of finance policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, as well as an expert on cryptocurrency policy. Good morning, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much for having me on. Testimony will continue in hearings in Congress over this whole debacle. Can you, though, try and explain for us, because, look, I am still trying few years in to really grasp the nature of cryptocurrency. But this story is more than just this ethereal notion of crypto. It implicates some traditional notions of fraud and Ponzi schemes and so forth. But can you succinctly sort of describe for us what we're looking at here with FTX? And then we'll get into ESG and some of these regulatory things you're writing about. Well, there is a lot. Uh, you're right. There's a lot of traditional uh, fraud, uh, charges of fraud and, and embezzlement. There were, uh, uh, as, as John Ray said, it looks like uh, uh, plain uh, yesterday. It looks like plain old embezzlement. The uh, grand jury, you know, upon Sam Bankman Fried's arrest, um, uh, charged uh, uh, SBF, as he's called, with six counts of fraud and one count of money laundering, including wire fraud, commodities fraud, and including the the SEC and uh, the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the SEC's and Securities and Exchange Commission, um, did actually also had civil suits on uh, on securities fraud and commodities fraud. So it just looked like I mean, he was taking money from customer accounts to put sort of it in his uh, personal account as far as real estate, political donations, and uh, crypto. I mean, despite, you know, the people, you know, saying there's no regulation, it's not exempt from these laws. And that was what was, was proven yesterday. So when you say not exempt from these laws, so there are some basic laws that still apply as far as maybe the business practices that they were operating under at this firm, even though crypto itself is not regulated per se and of course we don't have something like the fdic to backfill anybody when their money goes kaput right and, and we really don't want that we, we really don't want to have to have crypto bailouts and too big to fail and the problems with lehman brothers and everything everything else in my opinion and yeah but basically nothing i mean when you, whether you've got you know uh uh beanie babies computer software or whatever it's not exempt for basic you know um uh fraud and uh uh, money laundering and, and other laws. Uh, cryptocurrency exchanges have to register with uh, uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And one of, well, one of the 
problems is the lack of clarity in regulations that the SEC is saying some cryptocurrencies are securities, but not others. That if they're so so big as Bitcoin and Ethereum, you may not be securities, but others would be, even though these really don't fit in the regular securities framework and they don't pay dividends. The ironic thing about the SEC suit was it charged with defrauding its shareholders, but not didn't make the claim as that before the cryptocurrencies itself were securities. But this, you know, for all the talk about how you know, this is a, this is a totally unregulated sector. I mean, this showed yesterday there are plenty of laws that apply and laws that could have you know done before when people mm. were warning about FTX. Yeah, that's such a, a an interesting point, especially something that has been lost in the discussion because we're looking, I think, at one sort of one category of regulations when really what's implicated here more than anything else that can actually address things legally in this moment is this other category as far as how uh, firms like this are supposed to operate when they are taking investment cash and what they're doing and, and so forth. Again, we are talking with John Burlow. He is Senior Fellow and Director of Finance at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. One thing that the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, has pursued, and you've written about this for uh, for Competitive Enterprise Institute, John, is this notion of environmental, social, and governance mandates, ESG mandates. And that's something where what you describe as legitimate cryptocurrencies, such as XRP and LBRY, are being uh, treated in a way that's arbitrary in terms of enforcement action. They're not implicating fraud. These are situations where you have different things being done in cryptocurrency space that are not fraud, but yet the SEC is cracking down because of, and we see this in the corporate world broadly, environmental, social, and governance principles and mandates. What is that ESG, and how is that concerning to you vis-a-vis crypto right now? Well, yes, you, you know, uh, Sam Bankman fried tried to um, uh, wrap himself in ESG. In fact, he tried to pr- promote uh, uh, core, you know, he tried to talk about how carbon friendly, carbon neutral FTX was and, and lured some people to the platform. Also, you know, was, was sort of bashing some of the more established coins like uh, Bitcoin for using too much energy and, and promoting some of the newer coins that, you know, we said were more carbon friendly. Which really, you know, people may have lost, you know. Also, another way he was he was having some of his customers uh, uh, lose money, which I'm going to be writing more about at CEI.org. But really, I wrote, I followed up the SEC just for going after things, you know, losing sight of their mandate of, you know, detecting and investigating fraud. There were warnings about FTX from short sellers such as Mark Cahodes, but instead they were trying to make just general corporations disclose, you know, how greed they were with subjective with, with ESG and also going after like I said with the with the securities regulation XRP which is like the third so the third or fourth largest crypto in the world used in a lot of other countries not for fraud allegations but because it just because it was not a security even though you know the they, they had met with the SEC and it said it was fine and the, the SEC would hmm. argue okay. decide this so I mean they need to Go after fraud in the securities market, and when, when they can, when they can in the in the in the in the crypto market, and otherwise just write you know uh, uh, clear rules that don't you know hurt you know um, either investor opportunity or legitimate entrepreneurs. The same as the Sarbanes Oxley Overkill did in the wake of the Enron scandal, it, it hurt a lot of legitimate 
you know, smaller companies trying to go public without uh, really, you know, uh, doing much to fight fraud. A couple minutes left with our guest, John Burlau of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So let me just clarify something, make sure I'm understanding right. So the, what you're contending, John, is that the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, has been going after corporations, a variety of different industries, but including corporations and cryptocurrencies uh, that are in the crypto space, over these environmental, social, and governance mandates and principles. Focusing on that, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX that are playing the game on ESG. They're donating to Democrats as well, being the second largest donor SBF was in this last election cycle to Democrats. They're talking the talk about the environment. They're saying we are keeping emissions down. We're doing this and that with our computers and so forth as far as energy usage. So while the SEC is focused on ESG, which doesn't implicate um, uh, FTX and SBF because those guys are playing the game right, SBF and FTX are screwing around with fraud, allegedly, of course, and this conspiracy stuff. And so basically the SEC's eye is on the wrong ball. Is that right? Uh, yes, it's, it's, on, it's on a couple of wrong balls. It's, it's on, you know, whether... Whether the cryptos are 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 securities, not whether they're committing they're committing fraud and you know kind of exceeding its authority, and on making just general corporations you know disclose you know how green they are, you know subjective measurements of like it when it comes to climate and things like that. When you know when there are you know when they're clearly like you know when it's clearly like like relevant to all investors and financial performance, they should do that. But they're you know going beyond that, so. They've been looking, you know, beyond fraud and uh, basic disclosure for investors, and uh, it's taken their eye off the ball, exactly. John Burlau, our guest, just one final question. Uh, what are you going to be looking for in these hearings? Where do we go from here? I'm going to be looking for more things as far as, as, far as just getting getting to the bottom of this. How is this, how is this allowed uh, uh, to, uh, to fester? Um, uh, as as well as what are some ways we can you know we can act you know, focus on actual fraud and prevent this for the future as well as things like you know access, updating the bankruptcy laws so people could get access to their money faster things like that things that would really you know help serve you know um, uh, crypto holders and financial consumers. Mm. Well, we'll be watching with great interest, and I'm sure we'll talk again down the line. John Burlau, Competitive Enterprise Institute's Director of Finance Policy. Thanks so much for joining us, and appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. Thanks, same to you, and thanks so much. CEI.org is our website. CEI.org, they definitely do some great work at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Good to be with you. Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler today. We're going to take a break. There's more on the other side, including top of the hour. We will have two Iranian-Americans in studio to get a real good sense of what is happening in Iran right now as we speak with these historic, genuinely historic protests. Keep it right here. Don't go anywhere. News Talk 710 KNUS. Groom Mac, Jimmy Sangenberger here with you, filling in for George Brockler this morning. 
On News Talk 710 KNUS, coming up at the top of the hour, we will speak here in studio with Babak Bezadi and Amir Kayani, who will both join us to talk about what is happening in their home country of Iran. We have seen genuinely historic protests in Iran recently. The largest since at least 2009. And there is an interesting piece a day or two ago from the Wall Street Journal by a couple of foreign policy experts on why Iran's protests could topple the regime. Do Babak and Amir believe that could be possible? What is happening on the ground in Iran? We will get some excellent insights coming up in the next hour when they join me here in studio. I, I want to talk about one other thing to wrap up the hour. I have a new column out for Colorado politics today. You can also get it at denvergazette.com, entitled A Banquet of Consequences for Local Power Abusers. And you often think about the swamp in D.C. or what happens under the Golden Dome in Colorado when we see Corruption, or we think about corruption, or we think about abuse of power in particular. But all too often, what we are increasingly seeing is abuse of power as a sort of epidemic locally, right here at Denver metro area. Think of Denver. Think of Aurora. In Aurora, take the story of Robin Nesetta. She is the former Arapahoe County Child Protective Services official. She pled guilty, uh, not guilty, excuse me, not guilty on Monday to criminal charges concerning a false sexual abuse report filed against Aurora City Councilwoman Danielle Jarinski. Now, this is a, a dastardly tale. The allegations are stunning. And what Jarinski went through earlier this year was just no parent should ever have to endure anything like what Danielle did when she was accused of sexually abusing her two-year-old son. This is just horrifying. And there's implications here of a former Aurora police chief, Vanessa Wilson, who was Nisetta's girlfriend at the time, calling... Um, you know, and, and particularly because Jarinsky had the day before the call was made in January to Child Protective Services, allegedly by Robin Nisetta. Jarinsky went on to Stephen Tubbs show here on KNUS and blasted the former police chief, then Chief Wilson, who was again Nisetta's girlfriend at the time and calling for her firing. So that whole story is, I mean, there are questions that Wilson needs to answer. There are disturbing aspects to, well, this whole story. And that seems to be a clear abuse of the system in Arapahoe County. Then I also talk about this in Denver Public Schools. Did you hear about former DPS, Denver Public Schools principal, Kimberly Grayson? She was investigated last year for allegations of misspending more than $175,000 on district-issued credit cards. She was the principal at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College, and she spent the money on 
more than 2,400 items. This was reported first by the Denver Gazette. Nearly half of the money is unaccounted for and without receipts. So the credit card was taken from her, but eventually returned. And then in this past May, Grayson was briefly promoted to a district-level position until she was placed on administrative leave as more accusations came to light. So then her credit card got confiscated again. She ultimately resigned in August following an unrelated investigation and allegations she racially discriminated and retaliated against some DPS employees. And I'm just wondering, how in the world did a DPS principal get away with such abuses for so long and what real-world consequences will she face for her malfeasance? But is it surprising that this would happen in DPS? When you look at the top, the example set from the top, where you see school board members like Tay Anderson and Scott Esserman abusing their positions of power, engaging in abuse of power, say, in May of this year, holding a public meeting at Manual High School to berate an employee, an instructor for the JROTC program that was there at the time, accusing him wrongly, falsely, of causing the program to be moved to a different school from Manual, the JROTC program. Meanwhile, Gordon Crawford, the employee, is standing there having to take all of this. I spoke exclusively with Crawford in studio on my show Saturday. Check out the podcast from the... 7 o'clock hour, the second hour on Saturday. 710knus.com, go to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show page for that. But it is horrible. These are just a few examples of abuses of power that need to be held into account. And as I write for Colorado Politics today, the Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson once said, sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. From school leaders to government agency staff, local officials who abuse their power must unavoidably sit down at their own banquet of consequences. And by the way, folks, it is our job to make sure that happens. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Amir and Babak, both immigrants from Iran, about what's happening in Iran right now with their historic protests. You don't want to miss this conversation. They'll be in studio next. Jimmy Sangenberger in for George Brockler, 710 KNUS. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.